0: We're going to talk a bit about missions. Missions. When I say missions, what I'm referring to is the great calling that our Lord Jesus Christ has placed on the lives of believers. At the end of Jesus' life and ministry, even after his death on a cross, his burial for three days, his resurrection, right before he ascends into heaven, Jesus gathers his disciples and he gives them the great commission. This is recorded in a few places, but we especially remember it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's the beginning of the Great Commission. Each and every one of us who's here today is here because someone, somewhere lived on mission. And that's actually, I believe, true. If you're with us today and not yet, would you say you're a believer? Even if that is you, the fact that you've heard anything about churches or gospel or Jesus or Bible, it's owing to the fact that someone somewhere took this news that we call good news from Israel all the way on the other side of the planet and it made its way here. In fact, even more so for those who are saved today, if you're a believer today, say, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are so. Owing to an unbroken chain of Christians living on mission throughout the ages that have delivered the gospel to you. No one spontaneously turned into a Christian apart from that work. That's the way the Lord said it would happen. Throughout Jesus' entire life and ministry, even before having died and then being raised, we see the gospel already on the move. In fact, the good news and the proclamation of it is what marks Jesus' ministry from his very first words. He went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That was his mission, and we share it. That's actually why I named this church the Mission Church. My wife and I moved here from Chicago almost exactly 10 years ago, within a couple of weeks. And we moved on out. We knew in planting a church we were the only ones kind of to start this. We had to come up with a name for the church rather than just random church. We thought about and prayed about, well, Lord, what is something we thought might be helpful to have in our our church name? And while I, at that time, did not know, and I could not have known, what the future of our church would look like, what kind of struggles and challenges we'd have to face, what types of things we'd experience, what I did know by that point, which was not surprising, any of us can know this, is that churches tend to drift from their purpose. This is a natural tendency in us. In fact, every one of us has this in us individually. We, are, we sing songs about this. We are prone to wander. And that's true individually and collectively. And so when I, I made the name of this church, The Mission Church, I did so because I knew that we may need to when inevitably the drifting would come. Standing in front of the mirror in the morning, brushing your teeth, shaving, getting ready to pause and go, The Mission Church. That in some way, perhaps, the hope was That there would be a bit of a, just one more practical reminder that we as believers are called to a mission. Jesus, in our text today, is at the very end of his conversation with a Samaritan woman, a woman at the well. We spent weeks in this story. You can go back and listen to prior sermons if you want to catch up to where we are. But what I plan to do is just to read the end of his conversation with her and then just a little bit of the aftermath The conversation Jesus has with his disciples following the one with the Samaritan woman. So I'm just going to read that text out loud in John chapter 4, verses 26 through 38. I'm going to pray, then go back to unpack the verses, offering up a few applications along the way. That's the plan today. If you have your Bibles, please go to John chapter 4. If not, just listen along. I'll read it here. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Let's pray. Lord, give us the gift of understanding, we pray, not just to build knowledge, of course, Lord, but to to unify us around gospel truths, to understand these things. We want to love you more. We want to love your word. We want to walk away wowed by what you have said, challenged by what you've said. And so, God, please do that work in us through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of that text this morning. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Interestingly, in this conversation with this woman, she's the first one to introduce the title Messiah or Christ, which just simply means anointed one or the anointed. It was what the people of God were waiting for in this day. Now, the Samaritans we see here, and what this woman says, were likewise waiting for a Messiah. They were effectively a different religion than the Jews. We had spent a lot of time on those differences in the last few weeks. You can go back and check those out. What we we know is that still they were waiting for a Messiah. For all the differences between Samaritans and Jews, they both knew they were waiting for the Christ. Now, you might be well served to know that in our day, right now, there's a view amongst modern Jews called a covenantal or Torah-centric Judaism. And it's slowly developed over time, and it's something that still persists, especially in the West. This particular view holds that the Old Testament does not foretell a personal coming Messiah. Instead, those who hold to this view today claim that simply the restoring of Jewish traditions and obedience to the Torah will bring about the Messianic era. So following that view, they don't see the Messiah as a literal person, but as corporate Israel restored to holiness. They don't see King David's descendants seated on a throne. They, say that they see those who follow King David in a general sense and obey the law. They are the Messiah corporately. Corporate Israel then is the Messiah according to that view, and plenty hold it in our day. Now here's what's crazy. The Samaritans rejected, of the 39 books of our Old Testament, they rejected all but five. They rejected the the prophets, they rejected uh, Psalms and Proverbs, they rejected the historical books of of the, the kings and the lineage there in Judah and in Israel to include David and Solomon and the promises that would come through that line for a Davidic king. And yet, this Samaritan woman with only five books, she knows better than many modern Jews today. Who are not awaiting a personal Messiah. The entirety of the Old Testament points to Christ. The entirety of the Old Testament continues to tell us that there will be a coming one. A perfect prophet. A final one. And that's who the Jews and even here the Samaritans are waiting for. So when she introduces it. Hey Messiah. There's a Christ. There's an anointed one coming. What does Jesus say? That's me wait no longer. Yeah, I know. You're talking to him. The wait is over. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So remember, this gospel is written by John. He's the disciple. It's the gospel according to John. John, at this time, would have been amongst these maybe dozen disciples. There could have been more that were part of this group at this time. Nevertheless, there was a crew. Some went to go get some food uh, and to bring it back while Jesus is sitting at the well. That was the introduction to this story. John comes back with them, and they all see this moment, this event taking place. You see this woman talking with Jesus. And sometimes in the gospel accounts, we get these types of personal insights, like this one from John. No one said anything, but we were all thinking it. They marveled. They were shocked. What is going on here? This is a little bit odd. They were confused. And their confusion should not be surprising, given all that we have seen regarding the seeming impropriety of a Jewish man talking with a Samaritan woman of such low repute. We've seen that over the course of the past few weeks. But they don't ask Jesus about it. They don't confront him on anything. Whatever questions they had kept him to himself. I want you to consider for a moment what this means from the woman's perspective. She sees this odd stranger alone sitting by the well in the heat of the day, not a typical time to come. She was the only one out there. And yet this time she's not alone. There's a dude sitting there, an odd stranger who begins a very unique and peculiar conversation with her so much that he begins telling her about he can give her living water without a bucket. And then he lets her know that he knows personal details about her private life that are very revealing. Not only this, but he gives a cryptic answer to her best theological question. And to cap it all off, he claims to be the Messiah. But when his disciples return, she witnesses yet one more oddity. Because not only does this man have an entourage, he's not alone after all. But he clearly commands such respect from them that when they roll up on this unusual and perhaps slightly scandalous scene, they don't even say a word. Just picture that. So all of a sudden, there's these others who come along too and they just, in deference to their master, oh my goodness. I think it's just like one more point for her to confirm. There is something significant and special going on. And so what does she do? So the woman left her jar, water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town, and they were coming to him. So she ends her conversation with Jesus. She leaves her jar there and then heads into the city to tell people about him. Now, again, remember, here's John writing this story. He's trying to remember what, he, what he's observed, what's gone down, and the Holy Spirit, to be sure, is inspiring the writing. But why do you think that John includes this detail about her leaving the water jar? Prior to this point, he had never even said that she had one. We might assume it. It might be kind of implied in her question. How are you going to draw water, right? Well, I would certainly not be the first one to note this, and probably not you either if you've seen this. Christians have long seen symbolic importance here. Why did she leave her jar? Because she doesn't need it. She will never be thirsty again She has found the source of the water of life Just as Jesus said And you don't need buckets to access That kind of precious gift Maybe that's why John includes that And what does she do with this new knowledge? What does she do with this understanding? A man proclaiming to be the Messiah She knew her assignment And she does exactly what she's supposed to do She tells everyone She runs right back to town And what does she say? Come See a man who told me all that I ever did. This is probably, again, another reminder that the facts that Jesus knew about her life were very close to her heart. They weren't like, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a true piece of trivia about me. It's everything I ever did. To be sure, it's hyperbole. But for her to point to the, oh, it must mean that that's a significant part of her life. And that's what she does. She goes and tells the people this. You know, sometimes even just little sentences like this can remind us of just the simplicity of what it means to share the gospel. Just how simple it is. What does she do? What degrees does she hold? What great theological insights does she have to offer? What holiness of modeling life does she have to offer? None. She just goes and tells people, y'all should meet this guy. That's simple as it is. She just tells them about Jesus. She drops everything and tells her neighbors about Jesus. When in doubt, you should do the same. Drop what you're doing and go tell people about Jesus. It really is just that simple. Her testimony has a great effect, doesn't it? The result is that people come out of the town They come to see for themselves. Next week we'll we'll get into even a little more of what happens with the Samaritans after this moment. But apparently whatever reputation the woman has, it's not that of a liar. Yeah, whatever Gretchen. Apparently something going on, it's not the boy who cried wolf kind of moment. Maybe the Lord's just working, the Holy Spirit's working in a special way in them very likely. But whatever happens, by her simple proclamation, come and see a man who knew all that I ever did, told me all that I ever did." And they say, okay, and they follow, and they go out back the same path that she took to the well to go to meet Jesus. Jesus started by going to meet her, and now they're coming to meet him. It is not your job, brothers and sisters, Christians, I'm talking to you right now, it is not your job to save anybody. That should be such a relief to you, because you can't save anybody. It is not your job to save anybody. It's not your job to argue anyone into the kingdom. It's not your job to get on a cross and die for somebody else. It's not your job to pick just the right moment and strategize to, bam, now we did it. No, 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 no. It's never been on you. All you and I are to do as believers is to be faithful witnesses. That's it. Tell others about Jesus. We make the introduction. That's what evangelism is, euangelion, that is, that is gospel, that is good news. What is the gospel? It is news. It's what you share. You just tell people. It's like being the paperboy. Read all about it. That's all we have to do. If you're not a believer today, that's, that's what you need to hear from us. We're not here to save you. We can't do that. We're here to proclaim what is true, to introduce you to Jesus. You need to meet somebody, and he's the only somebody who can take away your sins. And it is only by faith in him who died on a cross, rose again after three days, that you can have eternal life. That's it. Not by your works, not by you stop, stop doing all the bad things, start doing all the good things, get things just right, please God, and then he'll forgive you. No. By repenting of sin and turning faith to Jesus, that's it. If you're not a believer today, that's our gospel. You need Jesus. You need to receive him. You need to believe on him. And that's the gospel charge. If you haven't done that before, anyone else in this room would be happy to share the gospel with you, and that's all it is. You need Jesus. Believe on him, and so be saved. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Now, this is actually funny. It's especially funny if you're just reading the flow of John. We've covered these kinds of confusions already. Once again, these disciples make the same mistake as so many others, including the woman at the well. Jesus says, You should have asked me, I'd give you living water. Where's your bucket? He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus goes, how can a person get back in the womb? after?" No, no, no. I'll tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it. Temple? Well, how- That's a big temple, man. You're small. Everyone does this to Jesus over and over. But here's the funny thing. Jesus doesn't relent. He doesn't stop giving those confusing, confusing points. You'd think he would stop. But he doesn't. Instead, he just keeps on using this super spiritual symbolic language, confusing people left and right with impunity. And here's John recording it for us. But there is, I think, an application here for us. The Bible tells us that there are certain truths that require the Spirit for us to understand them. Require the Spirit. For us to understand them. Uh, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians, a few different places. I'm going to show you chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. Paul writes, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God does not only give us these wonderful truths, but he also gives us the code breaker, so to speak, in our hearts, the spirit of God that we may discern them. And he goes on, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We see this all over Jesus' life and ministry. He says stuff and people are confused. Sometimes he says them so clearly and the people are still confused. He tells his disciples repeatedly, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me. I'll be mocked, spit upon, beaten, beaten. I'll be scorned. Uh, Some of y'all are going to literally, you're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. I'll die. I'll be buried. Three days later, I'll raise. And they all turn to each other. What is he talking about? When the events are taking place, they are still confused with the clearest language Jesus can muster. Why? Well, because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit in such a way that they would by the day of Pentecost and that we have today. And instead, they're thinking with their flesh, That's what they do. They're not stupid. They're not not stupid. They're not even acting foolish. They're just food. Uh, What food? He even says, you don't know about this food. Okay? What does this mean for us? I want you to help apply this to yourself as well. Think about this. The smartest atheist in the world, the most intellectually powerful atheist in the world, and you, can both read the same passage of Scripture, and he get nothing from it, and you get sanctified. How? How does that work? Is it because you're so smart? No. It's a gift of God. That's why every time I preach and step up here, I ask that the Lord would do something, because if he doesn't, nothing I'm saying will help you. You see? So what does that mean for us privately? Think, just simple application. When you read the Bible, pray that the Lord will open the eyes of your heart. Pray pray that the Lord will send the Holy Spirit, do a mighty work, that the Spirit inside of you will help you see and understand what only the Spirit of God can help you see and understand. That's what you need to do. And when you learn things from the Word, when you go, oh my goodness, look at that, you don't go, man, I am smarter than everyone else. No, it's not you. Be grateful for God's gracious gift. Moving on. Jesus said to them, My food, this food that I'm talking about, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. So here we see the spiritual answer, right? I'm not talking about beef jerky in my back pocket. I'm talking about something spiritual. That's the food I mean. The food that I'm talking about is to do the will of him who sent me. That will satisfy like no bread can, like no fine meal can. Whatever you just bought in that Samaritan town to bring back to me, I will eat and get hungry again. I'm not talking about that kind of food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus will only be satisfied by fulfilling his purpose before his Father. He wants that more than anything. Your will be done. And our application, of course, so clearly and obviously from this can be, like Jesus, we ought desire to please the Father more than anything, more than food. This is in part how fasting can aid and help in the life of a believer today. Because when you get that grumble in the stomach, and start feeling the flesh, the totally normal and appropriate fleshly hunger for food, there should be a sense in which that reminds us of, no, but I want something else more. I want to please my Lord. We should crave that more than even food that fills the stomach. But Jesus goes on. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Let's take a look at this for a bit. Do you not say? Jesus provides here an illustration from their own common farmry, farming or gardening practices. It's not a challenging one to understand. Even as a non-farmer, we can get this. But I'll especially say this if you're not familiar with it or if there's kids in the room. Hey, think about sowing. If you think about sowing, you might think about thread and needle kind of sowing. That's not the same word. What Jesus is talking about here is what farmers do when they're planting seeds. The sowing we're seeing here is where farmers go out and they rake lines in the, in the ground after plowing the field and they drop in seeds and cover them back up. That's sowing. And what will happen months later after those seeds finally blossom and eventually bear fruit is that the farmers will go back out there the, and the, the laborers will gather the fruit off of those plants, right? That's how that works. That's the sowing and reaping we're talking about. And this particular kind of illustration of sowing and reaping is one of the more common illustrations in the New Testament. I wouldn't be surprised if, as I'm saying this, some of you in your mind are like, ah, Jesus, Jesus talked about sowing different types of seeds. And yeah, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven being like uh, those who sow seed in a field, and another comes along and sows, uh, sows the seeds of the tares of the wheat. Some of you think about Paul's statements in the New Testament all over the Bible. But I think that Jesus, using this illustration here, is in order for him to make at least two points. I think at least two points he's trying to make. The first point, I think, is this. It would be foolish to think that someone could plant seeds, come back the next day, and expect some fruit. Right? Put seeds in the ground, go to sleep, come back up. All right, where? What? All that work for nothing? No, somebody says, dude, give it some months, let it rain, water the ground, right? Why? Because every one of us knows it takes time. That's the first thing Jesus is getting at. That's why he gives a duration. There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. He's, you all know this. The seeds go in the ground, you wait, and after the time comes, then you get to pick the fruit, right? That's the first and very obvious thing. In an agricultural sense, that would be totally obvious to them. The second point I think he's making is this. A good farmer should be able to perceive when it's the time for harvest. That's the other point. That's why he says to them, lift up your eyes, look around you. Do you not see the field is white for harvest? That's what he's saying to them. The good farmer should be able to look out and go, whoa, there we go. It's time to pluck the fruit. If somehow farmer falls off his tractor, whacks his head on a rock... You know, short term memory loss, forgets the calendar and what day it is, he should be able the next morning to look out and go, whoa, it's time for harvest, right? That's the idea. Not only do you know it's going to take time, but also you should be able to perceive when the time has come. That's exactly what he says to these disciples. He's explaining that they should apply that same kind of patience and perception to a spiritual harvest. Look around you. Lift up your eyes. People are coming to me. Do you not see? It's time for a harvest. Jesus' disciples here, it seems, were unable to recognize that it was, in fact, time for harvest. They, they didn't recognize it on their own. They needed help from him Now, what does he want them to do about this harvest? Hey, laborers, do you see the harvest? What does he want them to do? Very obvious answer, right? And he says it next. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. These disciples have been sent by Jesus to reap. Others have been sent to sow. And both are a part of the same great work. John the Baptist, we saw just before this, is a sower. They are reapers. And because they're both working in the same field, they're both on the same team, and at the end of his ministry, Jesus will send out all of his disciples. And if you're a Christian today, that includes you and me, to be a part of sowing and reaping until he returns. That's what we're to do. Sow and reap, sow and reap, sow and reap until he returns. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about a few application points about sowing and reaping through the end of our sermon here. First point is this, and this is just clearly stated by Jesus. Some will sow, others will reap. Some will sow, others will reap. Super obvious application. You and I, as disciples of Christ, are meant to be one of those two. Sowers and reapers Maybe both, depending on the seasons of our lives, but... We don't get to decide which we are. Jesus decides that. He determines the season and the location in which we are to labor. And those factors are largely dictating how much evangelistic fruit we will gather. And that's why the judgment on our faithfulness will not be on what's in your basket when you get to heaven. Because if you're a sower, your basket should be empty Jesus, it was once full of seeds, and look, I have sown all of them. If you're a reaper, your basket should be full. Lord, I reap fruit from the labors that I did not sow. you get it? The judgment will not be based upon how full the basket is, but our faithfulness will be determined on the labor we performed according to the task determined by him. This is why he says one sows, Another reaps. Those are different tasks, all part of the same work. If you've ever wondered about the ministry of these disciples and just how rapidly the gospel spread to the nations while under their watch, it's owing to this. He said, you are reapers. In God's perfect timing, he sent them out at a time of unprecedented reaping their effectiveness was not primarily owing to some special skills that they possessed, but because it was a time of harvest. In fact, they would be called in a unique way. They were firsthand apostles. They were gifted in unique ways. We do see that coming forward, but that's not what produced the harvest. They were given those things because they were doing their ministry in a day of such great harvest. And that's proven by the fact that even those men experienced fruit, both in abundance and in scarcity. They got to experience both. In fact, the Apostle Paul is the greatest evangelist not only in his generation, but probably in the history of the world. And there were many times in the Apostle Paul's ministry that the proclamation of the gospel did not bear the fruit one might expect. And the problem then was not in the gospel. Nor was the problem something in Paul. Well, Paul, he just... He had an off day. No. The problem was in the soil in which he was sowing at that time. Hard ground. The most effective evangelist in the world, sent by Christ, was unable to convert hard-hearted peoples on many occasions. And that should be an encouragement to us. Read through the the, the Acts of the Apostles. Read through that, that book. And you'll see repeatedly them running up against hard times where people refuse to listen to them, try to kill them, all this stuff. Why? Well, because of this. The Apostle Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7. through 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor he, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You get it? Paul speaks of himself as a sower. Listen, I just put the seeds in the ground, and I didn't see any fruit. But after I left, Apollos, another Christian brother, came along and he watered. And what happened after that? God gave the growth. And so what's the whole point of that? Whether I sow or I reap or I water in between, God does the work. If God works, plentiful harvest. If he doesn't, no fruit. So questions for you. It's not hard to have a desire to be a reaper. Heavy basket full of fruit. Have you ever gone apple picking or berry picking or something like that? We used to do that all the time back in Illinois before we moved to Utah. Tons of apples back in Illinois and Michigan and Wisconsin, very close to where we lived. And so we'd travel every fall, just take an hour or so drive, and go down these just rows and rows of trees and just pluck apples off. And if there was even so much as one spot, they were... were it's millions of apples. You, just, you can eat, eat around that and throw it on the ground and go for another. There's just so much fruit. Everybody wants that, right? But what if God has called you to be a sower? Would you be okay with that? This is a personal question. Ask that of yourself. What if God intends for you to share the gospel with your family or friends or neighbors or coworkers, and in his perfect providential timing, he knows you will not experience one of them come to saving faith in Christ. But maybe some after you will pick up where your seed sowing left off and they will finish the labors and experience that fruit. Are you okay with that? Now, As a Christian, you're probably very, of course I'm okay with that. But sometimes seed sowing can be a very challenging endeavor if we don't view it rightly. I want you to think about this because if you live in Utah, as I expect that you do, I think you need to get very used to being a sower, a sower. You need to learn how to take great joy in being a sower of seeds, gospel seeds. Utah has a rich history Of faithful sowers. In fact, the first big wave of missions work—Christians trying to reach the lost peoples of Utah—took place in the late 1800s. Unsurprisingly, that's when the big wave of people came on out here. Mormons came and settled in the 1840s, and then the people came after. Missionaries began making their way out here to share the gospel done some research over the course of the past couple of years on that era, and it's been fascinating to me to read about this first wave because you can track historically a wave of evangelism and missions that dropped off right at the beginning of the 1900s. And there are reasons for that. I'll talk about it in another sermon in another day. But tons of missionaries and ministry efforts came out here and then, boom, fell off the face of the planet. We are really right now riding essentially the second major wave of evangelism and missions in Utah. How did the first one go? I want to read for you a couple things here. This is from a Congregationalist minister who came out literally, covered wagon, and made his way over thousands and thousands of miles of this territory for decades to share the gospel amongst the Mormon peoples out here in Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho. His name was Reverend John Nutting. By 1935, this is how it starts because he says this at the end of his ministry. By 1935, the central Mormon region had been worked over seven times. 381,510 house-to-house calls had been made. Over 45 million pages of literature had been distributed. And over 40,000 Bibles had been sold or given away. And these zealous missionaries failed to convert large numbers of Mormons. Another scholar writing about the same period of Christian missions here in Utah, he said, the direct results of mission work in Utah, as measured by converts for Mormonism, were so slight as to be almost negligible. Another historian writes this, he says, the churches are not reaching the Mormons. So far as converting the Mormons is concerned, money has been largely wasted. If 200 real Mormons have been changed into real evangelical Christians during the time, we have been unable to discover them. A Presbyterian pastor who had labored for the past two years in Utah is of the opinion that of all of those denominations and groups that had worked together for decades, not 100 Mormons have been converted into actual Christians. In fact, for a period of almost 40 years of ministry, one Baptist minister counted, after reviewing everybody that he could, he thinks maybe 68 people came to Saving Faith in Christ. And most of them, as soon as they got saved, moved to the East and did not stay in Utah. That's our history here. Hard labor in the heat of the sun, spiritually speaking. Sowing seeds in the ground for almost no fruit. Because we're Christians. We take joy in sowing as much as reaping. When I arrived here about 10 years ago, my wife and I are almost on our 10-year anniversary of moving to Utah. September, the first first week of September will match that. When we first arrived here, people were fleeing Mormonism in droves. Their their own scholars were saying this more than ever before in the history of Mormonism, maybe going back until perhaps the death of Joseph Smith and then the exchange of powers that took place before Brigham Young took over. I had assumed in my planning and preparation to come on out to Utah that the reason the Lord wanted me out here must be to help get Mormons out of Mormonism. I, I just assumed that. Very quickly, it became evident that the LDS church was far more effective of getting Mormons out of their own church than I ever could be. We realized that our energies needed to be put to something different. Helping, serving, sharing the gospel with those who are pouring out of that. Like like the sinking Titanic and, and, and tiny lifeboats taking on every survivor, thrashing about in the water. You know, when I arrived, many Christians were quoting this, and especially ministers and um, pastors were, were just praying for more and more believers to show up. Look, so many people leaving Mormonism. I mean, thousands, maybe millions leaving Mormonism. And they would quote Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Jesus says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, they saw people exiting the LDS church and thought, harvest! And they probably thought this because pastors, were innately usually very optimistic. <laughs> you kind of have to be to survive ministry landscapes like out here in Utah. Look at this moment! But you know this. You, I, I'm sure so many of you know this. Just because people are leaving Mormonism, that does not mean they're coming to Christ. You know that, don't you? Some of you know it deeply and personally. It's my judgment, and I know that many of you would agree with this. I suspect it wouldn't be hard to convince you. It's my judgment that we as believers in Utah presently are still largely in a season of sowing. For whatever reason, the Lord has not yet willed that the Holy Spirit would bring a mighty revival with thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people coming to save in faith in Christ. That has not yet happened. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray for that. Please, Lord, do that mighty work. You do. On an occasion, God does exactly that in history, and boom, lights a fire, a spiritual fire in an area, and people come to faith in Christ in droves. Whoa, man, so much fruit. But unless the Lord does that, we will likely be seed sowers for our days here. We don't live in a state where we have the advantage of hundreds of years, hundreds of years of gospel sowing, Christian infrastructure building. Christians come here for a few years and then they move back to where they come from. No, No judgment, that's just the way that it goes. Utah is the only state in the U.S. that has, check this out, Never been predominantly Christian. Only state. It's the only state that the enemy could say has never been predominantly Christian. This is my land and has always been my land. Get that? It used to be true about Hawaii before Christians got there, and then it became 63-something percent Christians. I mean, we're the only state that we can say this about. There's never been a major harvest here in Utah yet. So why am I saying this? Am I trying to discourage you? Not in the least. Absolutely not. And why? Because what does Jesus say? What does he say here? Does he say, the laborer who sows will be miserable, but the one who reaps will have joy? Does does Jesus say that? No. He says that both the one who sows and reaps will rejoice together. (laughs) Who gets rejoicing? The sower or the reaper? Who gets it? Both. Both get it. Our enemy Satan doesn't like losing ground. He has thousands of years of practice all around the world on how to win. He does not give up yards easily, and he plays dirty. He kicks you when you're down. He never relents. This is why the enemy is, and this is right language here, this is why the enemy is so hell-bent on dividing believers. Because any division will do it. It makes no difference to him which kind, as long as he can distract us from putting seeds in the soil. Because if we don't put seeds in the soil, there will not be a harvest to reap in the next generation. And that's exactly what he's counting on, us... Us working in the heat of the sun day in and day out with so little fruit. Guess what, guys? And You know it. It can be spiritually exhausting. My goodness, I shared the gospel with 100 people, 200 people, 1,000 people. No one wants Jesus. I've shared the truth with my parents. I've shared them with my neighbors. I've shared them with my adult children. I've shared them with my coworkers. I've just tried to model truth in Christ's likeness. I've done everything that the gospel tells us to do in seed sowing, and I have not plucked one piece of fruit to enjoy and taste and go thank you lord for the hard work and the fruits that come as a result of it no and that's exactly what the enemy is counting on us not taking joy in the sowing so you and I we must be ready for and we must be committed to the task of sowing we must we must skip into the sower field singing songs of praise as we scatter the seed. That's what we've got to do. Because it is possible, and this is, we know this is true all over the world, it is possible we may have to sow seeds in the ground for multiple more generations before the reaping, in large part, will take place. Have you ever thought of that? You might have to be Christians in Utah, that your great-great-grandchildren will finally be around to reap what we've been sowing. Right, and we we can trace this exact kind of thing all over the world, and that could happen here as well. As a church, we support a missionary family in Ireland, uh, the Amadi family, who's over there. Michael is actually coming back to give us a missionary report. On the 10th of September, just a few weeks from now, I'll, I entreat you all, please come back that evening. He's going to give a report, a, min, a missionary kind of uh, presentation and tell you what it's, how it's been going down there. That is hard soil where he's doing ministry over there, I'll tell you what. That is sower's work. I want to introduce you to another missionary in the upcoming months. My wife and I have been supporting a family for a long time who's doing missionary work to Iraq, unreached people groups up there. I have a special heart for the people I once hated. And Christ is sending missionaries there. (laughs) So I would love for you to meet other missionaries. And we don't know what their missions are going to be like. We don't know how fruitful it will appear. We don't know if their work will be sowing work or if it will be reaping work or both (laughs) year after year. We don't know. We don't know what is in the Lord's will in that. But I do know this. The ministry work of sowing and reaping both need our support. Do you know why the first wave? I'll just, I wasn't going to say this. Do you know why the first wave of missions work to Utah failed? Why it, it, it didn't persist? Do you know why it stopped? Why it tailed off? Do you know why it happened? Because Christians said if we send our money to India, we get hundreds of converts. If we send our money to, 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 um, to Utah, no one gets saved. Seriously, that's what they did. I'm not even judging it. I'm just saying that's what happens. The support of reapers is exciting, the support of sowers. Doesn't feel like the same investment. Everyone wants to support the ministry work of reaping. And if we're in the midst of sowing, how much more should we be sensitive to the need of sowing everywhere in the world, right? Let's get behind the sowers. (laughs) Oh, goodness, I'm over time. Let me wrap up here. Guys, kingdom building is a team effort. It really is. We each need each other to do it. And the fruit from one harvest becomes the sowers for the next. The fruit of one harvest become the sowers for the next. What happened with the Samaritan woman? What was she? She was fruit being reaped by Jesus. Is one of the reasons I think that she's saved, because the way that Jesus talked. You should have noticed, disciples, that the harvest is ready. That The only one they had seen here yet was the woman in conversation with Jesus. I think he's talking about her. You can't tell. You should be able to tell. Her heart is ready. And what does she do? What's the very first thing she does? As the fruit, she goes out and starts sowing. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And we're going to see how fruitful her sowing is next week. If you're a believer today, you are the fruit of someone else's ministry an evangelist or a parent or somebody else in your life. And what are you to do now? Sow for fruit again later. And remember, both sowers and reapers get the same joy. Some get the task of putting the seeds in the ground. Some get to pluck the fruit. And both get the joy. Will you be able to humbly rejoice with the reapers? God sees your work. It does not go unnoticed. And I think we need people with a particular gritty resolve to have joy in the hard parts of sowing that someday we will celebrate the work, the labor that we have done in heaven with the fruit of those labors. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have sent out sowers and reapers, and we are here as a result. Lord, I pray that we would likewise continue with that and we'd be pleased with whatever you have for us to do. We pray for fruit. Oh, Lord, give us fruit, even just a little, just, just some that's a reminder we're doing what we're called to do. We will rejoice over that fruit, Lord. We will celebrate every soul that comes to saving faith in Christ. We will not take credit as we had done something mighty and good, but only as humble laborers who get to do the work in the master's field, Lord. So God, we pray for much fruit, whether it be in our lifetime or those that follow us. And we submit all this to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.